Uh, When the risen Jesus had made himself known to Mary Magdalene in the garden on the first Easter Sunday, he said to her, Don't cling to me, since I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus spoke of the Father as God of both himself and his followers. But he made a distinction between himself and his followers. My father and your father, my God and your God. As we continue to consider the Christian confession of God as one God, Father, Son and Spirit, by working our way through the Nicene Creed, that ancient confession, that expression of what Christians have uh, believed and a belief that's been shared by all believers across the centuries, as we work our way through the Nicene Creed, we will today think about God the Father, confessed in the Creed as the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is visible and invisible, under the two aspects Jesus spoke of to Mary. Firstly, we'll think of the Father as the Father of the Son, the Lord Jesus. And secondly, and wonderfully, we'll then think of the Father as the Father of Jesus' followers, our Father. These two aspects of our confession are inseparable, bound together by our confession of Jesus as the eternal Son of God. We can only know the Father as the Father of the Son. And only as the Father of the Son can he be our Father. And we are wholly dependent on God for this knowledge. For we have no access to knowledge of God, to the relationship between the Father and the Son, other than what God says of himself in his word. And so as we listen to the Holy Spirit speaking in scripture, and as we hear things that we all struggle to understand fully, recognise that this is God talking of himself. And in himself he exceeds infinitely our capacity to comprehend his fullness. And so as we listen to his word, we can hear. And as we understand what is written, we can know God as he makes himself known, know him in truth, but he is always bigger. And that is as it should be. For a God we could comprehend, know in his entirety, hold his being in our finite understanding, would not be God. So let's humbly receive what we're taught of the Father, of the Son, by God in his word, and receive it with thankfulness. For as our Lord said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. And as I know that these are different kinds of sermons, doctrine sermons, and they require a little more work from you, I want to again encourage you to give yourself to knowing God and work at it by meditating on his word. Uh, I read in an article someone expressing their discontent with the sermons they were getting. She said, it was not an application-based sermon. It was more like knowledge than life-changing, spirit-guided teaching. Now, of course, I don't know the particulars of the causes of their dissatisfaction, but I do know 
that what was said expresses a very short-sighted view of what to look for in a sermon. If all you're looking for is the take-home message, the what's in it for me, how I can live better or have a better life, you are shortchanging yourself and maybe reflecting our age's preoccupation with self and this world. And it is a very bad basis for a relationship with the living God. Imagine, for example, that you were on a date and you were opening up, telling the other person about yourself and they said, thanks, but that's just information. My present need is I'm hungry, so I just want you to tell me what you want me to order for you so we can get on with the meal. Now, you'd think with that kind of self-preoccupation, not much future for a relationship here, wouldn't you? Or a group of you were about to start a journey in unfamiliar country and a, a local had got out a map and was trying to orient you, explain what you could possibly meet on the way to your destination and one of the groups said, look, just tell me whether I need to turn right or left at the bottom of the hill and let's just get on with it. You'd think that that kind of impatience would get you into trouble. The living God has told us about himself. And he's done it by the eternal son, the eternal word at great cost entering our world. Done it to draw us into a relationship with himself. And that is extraordinary, isn't it? We should want to listen to him. Listen to what he thinks it's important we know about himself so we can relate to him in truth. And not show the rudeness of those who only want to know how it affects them or the impatience of those who have no time to learn. And besides, knowledge of God is spirit-given and life-changing. You see, knowing the true God brings us to the heart of reality. And as we'll see today, knowing God as Father is the source of a Christian's identity and life, of knowing who we are and how we should live and the foundation of our hope. And giving ourselves to what God has said of himself will actually deepen us. It will take us well beyond ourselves and our preoccupations. And it's something we can always give ourselves to in this age where in Paul's words we see in a mirror dimly where we are all always learning. So if you're just tempted to listen for the take-home message, well, pray for what we should all have, a thirst to know the living God by meditating on his word, humility to receive what he has said of himself as good, and the patience to wait for understanding where we don't at first understand. So what are we told of the Father in the revelation of the Son? And we're going to answer that by focusing on what the Son says of the relationship between the Father and himself. And we've got six observations to inform our confession of God as God the Father. And the first is this, that the relationship between the Father and the Son is a unique relationship as it is an eternal relationship. 
So John's gospel starts, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The word who becomes flesh, incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, is with God in the beginning. The Son is with God in the beginning. And the Son could pray. John 17, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. And know himself known and loved by the Father before the world's foundation, that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. The Son is always the Son of the Father, and the Father is always the Father of the Son. The Father doesn't become the Father of the Son when Jesus is born. He doesn't become the Father of the Son at any point in time. He is and always is the Father of the Son. And think about it. That means that he doesn't need you or I or any creature to be father. And if he becomes our father, it is actually by his choice, his free choice to bestow his love on you, to bring you, to draw you into his family. And if he's called father in scripture, it isn't because he approximates to human fatherhood and people project that onto him. No, it's because human fatherhood has been fashioned as a vehicle for his revelation. And secondly, in this relationship, the incarnate son tells us he comes from the father, sent by the father to do the father's work. If God were your father, Jesus said to his Jewish opponents, you would love me because I came from God and I am here. For I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. And to those who objected to the way he spoke of himself and his relationship to the Father, Jesus, recalling Psalm 82, said, 1036, Do you say you are blaspheming to the one the Father set apart and sent into the world because I said, I am the Son of God? And to bring home the magnitude of Jesus humbling himself to wash his disciples' feet, a sign of that greater washing he would perform through his death on the cross. John writes, Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. It is the eternal Son who is giving himself on the cross. Jesus knows he comes from the Father and that he has come to do the work and to fulfill the will of his Father. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And in his prayer on the night he was arrested, Jesus could say to the Father, I have glorified you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. The son's work is the father's work. They are one in that work. And so in the son's work, we know the father. We know his love, the love that would give the son to die for sinners. We know his power. We know his determination to save his people. 
And it's never a case of an angry father and a loving son pitted against each other or the God of the Old Testament pitted against the God of the New Testament. Father and son are one as the son does the father's work, the work the father has sent him to do. And in this relationship, the son shares the father's life, work and honour. A longer reading from John 5 that really speaks for itself. Truly I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son likewise does those things. For the father loves the son and shows him everything he's doing, and he will show him greater works than these so that you'll be amazed. And just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so the son gives life to whom he wants. The father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son so that all people may honour the son just as they honour the father. Anyone who does not honour the son does not honour the father who sent him. The father is always to be worshipped with the son and cannot be worshipped where the son is not honoured. And so you cannot say, as people like to say, as say the Jehovah's Witnesses like to say, or Islam wants to say, you cannot say you are right with God while denying Jesus and his claims. And life, work and honour are shared because the relationship between the father and the son is one of loving and giving. The father loves the son and the son knows it. He's the beloved son. John 3, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. John 5, for the father loves the son and shows him everything he is doing. And Jesus could speak in John 17 of that glory which the father had given him because he loved him before the foundation of the world. The father loves the son. He gives him all things. He shows him all things. All their work is shared. And in this the father glorifies the son. And the son loves the father. As you heard in the reading, on the night before he died, Jesus says he will surrender himself to his betrayer so that the world may know that I love the Father, and just as the Father commands me, even so I do. The Son loves the Father, and so obeys, glorifies, and honours the Father by doing his work. I honour my Father, Jesus said to the Jews, and you dishonour me. And so it is in the relationship between the father and the son that the father is uniquely revealed. As you heard in Matthew, Jesus said, all things have been entrusted to me by my father. No one knows the son except the father. And no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son desires to reveal him. We can only know the father in the Son. And John says, No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. And at the Last Supper, 
Jesus again makes that point, doesn't he? I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Lord, said Philip, show us the Father. That's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been among you all this time and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father's in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. You can only know the Father as you know the Son who is uniquely equipped by his relationship with the Father to make him known. And the Father, we confess, is the Father revealed by the Son. And so I say again that any claim to know God that does not honour Jesus as the Son is a false claim. You cannot claim to know the Almighty Father, the Creator, unless you know the Son. But knowing the Son, we do know the Father. We see in the Son the Father. And of course, what we see in the relationship of the Father and the Son is that it is an ordered relationship between those who are equally God. The Son is God, the Father is God. As you heard in John 14, Jesus says, If you loved me, you would rejoice that I am going to the Father, because the Father is greater than I. The Father, says our Lord, is greater than I. So there's an asymmetry in the relationship, isn't there? We've seen that. The Father commands, the Son obeys. The Father sends, the Son is sent. The Father gives, the Son is given. The Son prays to the Father and teaches his followers to do likewise. There's an order and it is an irreversible order in a relationship of eternal love where the Father loves and gives and glorifies and the Son loves and obeys and glorifies. But it is irreversible. The Father is never sent and the Father never obeys. Now let's think first what this order doesn't mean. <coughs> it doesn't mean that the son's deity is derived from or dependent on the father. The son is not a lesser God. And it doesn't mean that the father is the God of the Old Testament and the son and the spirit are elaborations of God for the new era of salvation, a temporary emergence for a new task of lesser dependent beings. The Son, like the Father, is God himself, creator, not creature. And we'll think more of that next week when we consider the next phrase of the creed. The Son's divinity is expressed in relation to, yes, but not derived from the Father, just as the Father's is expressed in relation to the Son and the Spirit. That's what it doesn't mean. But this ordered relationship does mean that God, Father, Son and Spirit is greater, more glorious and more beautiful in himself than we can imagine. You see, these days especially, we can figure relationships in terms of power 
And so we have difficulty thinking there can be both order and equality of persons. In fact, we often see order, say one commanding and the other obeying, as a denial of equality. For we think in terms of power, and we know that order based in power gives rise to a competition that divides, one being above making the other different and lesser. But it is different in the relationships in the eternal God. In the eternal God, the relationships are of self-giving, other person-centred, uniting love, a constant love. They're not based on competitive, dividing power. It's a love where each freely gives and where each is glorified in the other in their giving, glorified as each is, Father, Son and Spirit, without division. And you might be thinking, you know, I can, can kind of sense that's important, but what's the importance? Well, it actually affects everything. You see, it's this revelation of God's being, relational order, inequality of being, expressed in never-ending love that actually makes us confident as we see the triumph of God in the death of him, rising of his son, it makes us confident that whatever happens in the world, love will triumph because love is the being of God and he will never cease to be who he is. And that actually matters as we live in this world. Oh, and we oughtn't to think that the Lord of the Old Testament is just the Father because actually the Old Testament God has revealed himself clearly in saving through the Son as he always is, Father, Son and Spirit. For it's the Father, Son and Spirit who fulfil the scriptures of the Lord saving his people as we saw a couple of weeks ago. See, what we see in scripture is that within this order, it's the person of the Father who safeguards both the unity and the transcendence of God. The Father is the relational centre. The Son is the Son of the Father and the Spirit proceeds from the Father. And the Father remains transcendent in heaven, above, the one to whom the Son will return and who comes to his people in his Spirit. The one no one can see in this life, but who can be known as the Son makes him known. Recognising this order is the key to understanding the way New, the New Testament talks of the Father and the Son. Uh, you may have noticed uh, that repeatedly the New Testament speaks of God as the Father. Just some examples. So Romans 15, so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and one voice. Or 1 Peter, blessed be the God and, once again, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or Ephesians 1, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that way of speaking is not denying that the Son, the Lord Jesus, is God. 
It's actually recognising and honouring the order that the Lord Jesus taught, that the Father is greater than I, as well as reinforcing that God is our Father because he is first the Father of the Son. And this order is also the reason the creed ascribes almightiness and creation to the Father, when the Son and Spirit are also almighty and the Son and Spirit are also involved in creating. Now because the Father is the Father of the Son, sent into the world to save, trusting the Son, we can know the Father as our Father and be adopted into God's family, become his children and share in the family relationship and character. That this is the privilege of believers is clearly taught in Scripture. We're adopted in Christ through faith in Christ on the basis of his work. John writes, but to all who did receive him, that's the Lord Jesus, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who are born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. The Apostle Paul also speaks of this great reality. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. If children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Or again, in Galatians, when the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then God has made you an heir. Children of God, if you're a believer in Jesus. Now, this privilege is not earned. It's not ours because we are somehow worthy of being included in God's family. It's the gracious gift of God, forgiving our sins through the death of the Son and joining us to Christ by faith so that we are in Christ. But it is a wonderful gift, giving every believer an enduring and privileged identity. So if you're a believer in Jesus, you should know who you are. And identity's a big thing in our age, isn't it? You should know who you are, not by looking in, turning to your feelings and desires to find the true you, but by looking out to the gospel of our Lord Jesus, which tells you that through trusting our Lord Jesus, you are adopted as God's children. And that adoption anchors our identity in our relationship with the eternal almighty God, his children by grace and faith. And that adoption gives us an assured identity by the work of his spirit crying, Abba, Father, in our hearts. And it gives us a hopeful identity for its continuation doesn't depend on us but on God who raises the dead. And in the resurrection, we are told we will be co-heirs with Christ 
have a legal right to the new heaven and earth and all its joys and riches. That's why it's men, women, boys, girls, we're talked about as sons because in that culture sons remain and sons are heirs. And this is an identity that also will guide us in the present as it finds expression in our lives in every minute of every day. And I'm about to talk about that expression. But before I do, if you're a believer in Jesus, have you, do you savour the goodness of being a child of God, a gift to you undeserved? Does thanking God your Father for this gift get you out of bed every day, no matter how tiresome or trying the day to come may be? You know, when you understand that we're adopted as God's children, it's hard, isn't it? Hard to understand the alternative. A Christian not excited and thankful to be God's child. Not excited to have the word Father on our lips and spoken by the Spirit in our hearts. I'm convinced many of our struggles in the faith come from letting our problems dwarf this reality. We let our problems be big and we live as if it's a small thing to be God's child, a small thing to know he's committed himself to you in love, a small thing that he's brought you into his family by the rich mercy and kindness that gave the son to die for you, a small thing that he has given you a forever identity and a secure eternity. But how can you live like that? Because those things are not small things. They are great things, wonderful things, and always true things because it depends on God. So if you are not thankful, believer, for being a child of God, you ought to ask yourself, do I really believe it? Do I really believe the promise of the gospel? Or maybe your problem is that you've been trying to dictate to God what being his child should look like in your life, wanting actually a life different from the life of the true son who suffered for doing his father's will. But that is the life of the true children of God. So if you're struggling with thankfulness and joy, seek to recover the wonder of being God's adopted child, to recover that wonder by drawing near to him as you can, by meditating on his promises and know that they're sure, by thinking on how God has made you a member of his family through giving his son for you. And yes, remember the greatness of your Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth. And the best way to let that reality then stay big in your consciousness is to express it each day, to live in this world as God's child. Now, how can you do that? Well, here I want to remind you of two ways Scripture says this reality is to find expression in our lives. 
Firstly, by exercising the privilege of prayer and secondly, by the purposeful pursuit of holiness. So firstly, the privilege of confident prayer, assured access where we know our Father hears us. Not because we use the right formula, not because we have done something to get his attention, but because we are in relationship to him. This privilege was taught by Jesus. He said to his followers, when you pray, go into your private room, shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your father knows the things you need before you ask him. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honoured as holy, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We express the reality that believing in Jesus, we are the Father's children by simple, confident prayer, where we seek our Father's glory and commit our needs into his hands. Prayer to the Father was practised by the apostles. Consider one example, Paul's great prayer in Ephesians. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Prayer to the Father should be our prayer if we believe it. And as you pray, Remember the encouragement of the context of our confession of the Father in the Creed. We are praying to the one who is almighty, for whom nothing is too hard, the maker of heaven and earth, whom all things serve. Daily prayer to our Father sustains and shapes our identity and hope as his children. It submits our will and plans to his will, and it lets us rest in his generous love for all we need. And the second way our identity as God's children is expressed in our lives is by the purposeful pursuit of purity. Listen to John, and if you are going to go over one passage from Scripture after this sermon, well, this would be a good candidate. See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children, and we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. There's an expectation that believers should bear the family likeness, pure, just as our Father is pure. And if you want to read it, 1 John 3 then guides us in what that purity looks like, practising righteousness and fleeing lawlessness. It's a life directed by God through his word. 
Oh, it's fleeing hate and embracing love, loving in deed and truth, a life shaped by the example of the Lord Jesus and knowing his love. And this expectation that we should show the family likeness as God's children is throughout scripture when teaching us to love our enemies and pray for them. Our Lord says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And again, when Peter calls us to holy lives, different from the world around us, the reason is that our Father is holy. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. To live as a child of God is to pursue that pure, perfect and holy life that shows you belong to God's family, that you value and prize what your father prizes, that the family's values, not this world's values, the family's values shape all your relating in the world. And our Father can call us to this, the lives of his children, because he has given us the spirit of his Son that assures us we are his children and is at work within us to conform us to the character of his Son the spirit by which we can put to death, put sin to death, the spirit which we should expect to see working in our lives, that Christ-likeness of love, joy, peace, gentleness, patience, goodness, faithfulness, meekness and self-control. It is by knowing who we are as we know the Father of the Son, that we know how to live in the world and to live with hope. It's a wonderful thing to confess God as Father because you know God as the Father of the Son and as your Father through faith in the Son. That confession says you know your Father as the Father who sent his Son into the world in love so that you could have eternal life. To confess God as Father is to say you know you are loved with an eternal love. And to confess God as Father is to say you know who you are in this confused world. You know that by God's grace you are now a child of God one who can draw near to the almighty God, confident you'll be heard, one who's been born into a family of brothers and sisters to love and be loved by, one who has a secure future and who is committed now to living out the family values in the world. Brothers and sisters, we ought to honour our Father by holding fast to our confession of him as Father. Holding fast to that confession by keeping on confessing the Lord Jesus to be the eternal Son sent by the Father into the world to save. Oh, and honouring our Father by thanking him each day for his extraordinary grace that allows you 
and you know yourself, you know your heart, and he knows you better than you know yourself. He sees all the things you want no one else to know about you. Thanking him each day for his grace that allows you to call him the holy, almighty, eternal God, Father. And then consciously committing yourself to do what pleases him. And by honouring him in this way, holding fast to our confession, giving thanks, committing ourselves to do his will, like the true son, we will do what every son desires, bring our father honour and glory by doing his will in the world, trusting his son and walking in love.